The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, two of the biggest stories of the fall, the new wave of Cuban immigrants to the U.S., and the controversy over missing students in Mexico that has thousands marching in the streets. Gabriela Conchola has that story and more in our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Mexican police captured the mayor, Biguala, and his wife in the case of 43 missing university students. Police raided a home in Mexico City and apprehended Mayor José Luis Abarca, along with his wife, María de Los Ángeles Pineda. The couple had eluded police for more than a month. The students went missing in September after police in Iguala cracked down on their protests regarding educational policies. Mexico's Attorney General, Jesús Morillo Caram, accuses the mayor and his wife of orchestrating the disappearance of the students. Morillo Caram says they ordered the local police to work with a gang, the Guerreros Unidos, to prevent the students from protesting. Mexico's President Enrique Peña Nieto reacted to the arrest in a nationwide address. I hope that this detention contributes in a decisive way to the investigation. Despite the president's attempts at de-escalating the controversy over the missing students, thousands of Mexicans took to the streets this week in nationwide protests. We'll have more on this case later in the program. Argentina bans all products by consumer giant Procter & Gamble, or PNG. Argentina's presidential website published a statement saying P&G inflated the price of imports to extract more money from Argentina, also claiming that P&G is eluding paying taxes. P&G denies these claims, stating it is working to resolve these allegations. P&G has been operating in Argentina since 1991, running three manufacturing plants and two distribution centers in the country. Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro announced he will raise the minimum wage again. This is the third time Maduro has raised the minimum wage this year. The 15% comes amid an annual inflation rate of 64% and begins on December 1st. Last week, he announced he will raise wages for the armed forces by 45%. Maduro blames the high inflation rate on an economic war waged by his opponents. The opposition accused Maduro's government of mismanaging the economy. Two Colombian mothers may face 14 years in prison in Venezuela over $15 worth of groceries. Police arrested single mothers Jennifer Rojas and Belcy Alvarez for violating Venezuela's new anti-food smuggling law. Venezuelan President Maduro pushed for the new law to crack down on smugglers entering their country to take advantage of Venezuela's cap on food prices. The Venezuelan National Guard arrested the Colombian women walking out of a supermarket with bags of rice, pasta, and other food staples. Currently, the women are on parole awaiting trial after serving 45 days in jail. The penalty for smuggling in Venezuela includes 10 to 14 years in prison. For Latin Pulse, I'm Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Mountain View, California. Some may know that city as the home base of Google 
and the heart of Silicon Valley. Our listeners in the Valley make up our third largest audience behind the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and our loyal listeners in Sao Paulo, Brazil, this year. Thanks to all the tech heads and others listening to us in the Valley. But now back to Mexico and the case that has stirred anti-government sentiments and clarion calls to end corruption and the impunity of drug gangs in that country. The case has centered around the town of Iguala in the southwestern state of Guerrero, a state with a long reputation for violence and insecurity. Mexican officials now say the wife of the mayor of Iguala had ties to the Beltran Leva cartel and one of its affiliated gangs, the Guerreros Unidos, the United Warriors. We spoke to Maureen Meyer, an expert on violence in Mexico, at the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA. We conducted this interview via Skype the day before the mayor of Iguala and his wife were arrested. Meyer is among those criticizing the Mexican government for its slow response in the case of the missing university students. Because I think this case is important to remember that last year, three um, social activists from the state, from Iguala, were murdered um, and in the with five other individuals who survived, who were survivors to this case. And one of the survivors in that incident said, I saw this mayor kill one of these activists. I saw him shoot the gun and, and kill him and that the public security minister of Iguala was also present. So you already had specific accusations that have been presented both to authorities in the state of Guerrero and to federal authorities in the Attorney General's office. This guy is linked to killing social activists before and nothing had been done to investigate him. And so I think this is, again, a concern about collusion, but just inaction by Mexican authorities to really investigate these cases. Why did that case not go anywhere? There, there were a concern that they were going to take away the immunity of this mayor. Well, now his immunity has been stripped and he's on the run. So it didn't resolve anything. And I think, again, it just points to the risks of impunity in Mexico and not investigating these cases in fortune, in this case, not investigating a mayor who was corrupt originally or previously, you know, accused of corruption may have led to very concerning incidences that we're seeing today. Each week, it seems like there is a new mass grave found in Guerrero that mm-hmm. they think the students are buried in. And yet the people buried there are not the students, which speaks to the conditions for what's going on with this case with the students, but also for how many other cases of disappeared mm-hmm. people there are in Mexico these days? Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think it speaks to the fact that there are many other cases of disappeared people in Mexico because of the magnitude, the number of this case of so 43 students that are still su- disappeared has made it easier to bring to the spotlight. It's not just, oh, one or two you know, kids that were picked up by a criminal group or that were last seen being apprehended by Mexican soldiers, for example. There are thousands of cases like that. The Mexican government has recognized over 22,000 disappeared from both the Calderon government, so the previous administration, and then in this administration, over 8,000 disappeared. So it's something that happens quite often, but we always, because they're small numbers of cases, they don't get the attention that, that this case has. I think also the difference in this case is 43 students who are education students, these are not necessarily people who would be typically associated with drug gangs or those sorts of things. In some of these disappearances, um, there have been questions about were these people involved with gangs or 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 were they being extorted, those sorts of questions. But th- this is, I guess the question I have is, why has this case gripped Mexico in this particular way 
in the, that these other cases haven't? I, one, because of the number. Again, there's 43 and there's students. And so it's a hard, as you mentioned, hard thing to say, oh, they were involved in something. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're talking about 17 to 23 year olds, the first year of the teachers college students that were violently attacked by police. And I think that's the other aspect of it. They were taken by municipal police. And that has been recognized by the Mexican government as the municipal police took these boys, had them detained, handed them over to a criminal group. And so I think that aspect of it, that that explicit recognition too of collusion between these officials and a criminal group and also the implication that the mayor of the town is also involved and that they were originally apprehended at the orders of the mayor who also has links to organized crime has sort of represented for Mexican Mexicans across the spectrum. This is symptomatic of a lot of problems we have in Mexico and something that the Peña Nieto administration has tried to cover up. And if you look at the way the Mexican government talks about violence in Mexico, they talk about it as being something almost as the of the past. We have overcome this. This is Mexico's moment. We are looking at forward looking at other reforms to the energy sector, to education, to labor issues. And yet if you're a Mexican, lots of Me parts of the country, this is the reality you still have on a daily basis. Concerns about violence, concerns about corruption, and, and abuse by Mexican authorities. President Peña Nieto has been on national TV at least twice connected to this case, which is very unusual for, for a Mexican president. So he is actually feeling some heat for how people perceive that the government hasn't controlled this case. Of course. And he, I think he felt it particularly because he's it took the federal government almost a week to respond to this case. They originally tried to frame it as, oh, this is a local problem. It's, it's a problem of the governor of Guerrero. And because of the outcry and the scale of it, and then the fact that it is linked to organized crime, you need it, the federal government, to get involved. And if you talk to family members or folks that work with victims, they would say got involved a little too late. Those few days when there wasn't a, a really competent authority looking into this case, probably lots of things were lost because you didn't have any strong government presence looking into what happened to these boys. I want to talk about context and historic context. The last time we have a large group of university students um, disappearing is back in the late 60s in, in the 68 massacre in Mexico City, where we still don't even know the exact numbers mm -hmm. of students who were killed and disappeared in that particular case. And that really began an era of uh, oppression by the Mexican government. Is this case something different in that particular regard in that it because it's become such a public debate, is it also showing the that's how far civil society has advanced in Mexico in the past 50 years? I think because it's so the, the visibility this has, case has gained certainly speaks to the the evolution of Mexican civil society and of a large part of the population that's willing to speak out about cases that they have no real direct relationship to. But that outrage of what happened to these students that you didn't see in the Tlatelolco massacre that you referred to in 68. So I think there is an evolution there. I also think, though, that the context is different because in 68 you had paramilitary, basically agents operating at the behest of the Mexican government to shoot at these students in this protest. In this case, you have an organized crime element to it that you didn't have in that expo. So you have, a, and I think it represents what mo a lot of Mexicans feel about what's happened in their country in recent years, which is that you have this expansion of criminal groups and criminality that has made 
their day-to-day lives more complicated than before and where they're subject to abuses like extortion, fear of being kidnapped, um, the the implications of the Mexican government security forces throughout the country being implicated in human rights violations. So it's a different context that I think for Mexicans speaks of this broader concerns they have about the security in the situation. Mexicans feel less confident now about security than they did two years ago. They're less likely to denounce a crime than they were even two years ago. So I think it speaks to their big concerns about what's happening in the country and the feeling that the government isn't responding effectively to it. You mentioned that this particular mood in Mexico now under the Peña Nieto administration and that 8,000 people have disappeared that we can account for Mm -hmm. uh, during this particular administration. Uh, There was some fear um, as the Institutional Revolutionary Party came back into power that there would be an accommodation with criminal groups. Do you see it going that far, or is it just that the Peña Nieto strategy has been just as ineffective as the Calderon administration was in trying to combat these groups? The strategy of the Peña Nieto government hasn't been very different than what Calderon had had approached, had, had done, and it, and it almost is a reactive policy at this point than maybe what Calderon did, which was making the decision to deploy the military and police to parts of the country. Because you're looking at the criminal groups, the Peña Nieto government has actually been fairly effective in taking down kingpins. They have arrested in recent weeks leaders of the Juarez and Tijuana cartels. They've, they've certainly, in the almost two years of Peña Nieto's been in office, taken down in Chapo Guzman and other large leaders of the drug cartels. And yet I think what it's showing is that strategy, which was a strategy he actually criticized originally of the Calderon government, doesn't work to address the level of criminality in your country. And so in a place like Guerrero, where you have multiple smaller groups also operating, it shows that just looking to to tackle the upper echelons of a criminal group is not getting to the, the root of those problems, both in terms of the expansion of criminal groups in the country, but also what this case speaks to, which is the collusion of Mexican officials with criminal groups. And I think that's one area where we have not seen from this government or past governments a real concerted effort to go after that corruption and collusion. What would Wola's suggestion be on trying to combat that collusion and corruption? I think it's it's clear that this is not a easy fix, and Mexico certainly does not have an easy fix to its security crisis because you need lots of pieces of a larger you know puzzle work combined together to really address crime and violence in the country. So on the one hand, you certainly need to work more on Mexico's judicial system. They are into six years of a reform of the system that should make it more effective and transparent, but certainly have a lot more challenges to go in terms of getting to police that know how to investigate a crime and preserve evidence and judges that feel like their job is to look to put the right people behind bars to having effective police that are free from corruption and feel like if they're involved in a criminal act or human rights violation, they're going to be held accountable to their actions to more steps to go after political corruption in all parties, which we have not seen from any government of, we need to accept that there is a large problem of corruption within Mexican institutions and that that means that you need to investigate and prosecute politicians in Mexico for crime. And in the cases that you can point to are so few that it really leads to the fact that this continues because there's very little disincentive for corruption in Mexico. Your group, the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, has really try to raise awareness of what's going on in Mexico and also raise awareness about the militarized nature or 
quasi-militarized nature of of these strategies and what that produces, the the sort of extrajudicial killings and other problems that both police and military have had in Mexico. Would you like to expand on that? I would point to another case that has sort of been not spoken about or kind of overshadowed by the recent events in Iguala, which was a case that happened in June of this year in the state of Mexico in an area called Tlatlaya, where Mexican soldiers killed and basically executed 22 members or alleged members of a criminal group in an incident where even Mexico's National Human Rights Commission has concluded that at least 15 of these people were unarmed at the time when the Mexican soldiers came in, shot them in their legs originally, interrogated them, and then executed them. So at least 15 people, including two minors, were extraditionally executed by members of the Mexican military. And I think this case, which was shocking at the time, was first tried to be covered up by Mexican authorities in the state of Mexico and the military who said it was a shootout and that's how people died, to what it speaks to about excessive use of force. Because both cases, the case of Iguala and the case in, in the state of Mexico, you have security forces opening fire on unarmed individuals. So I think it speaks to, again, these concerns about, particularly with the military, having the military deployed to combat organized crime when they are oftentimes not held accountable for their actions and to military training that does not necessarily coincide with effective law enforcement. Thank you so much. Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, joining us on Latin Pulse today from Washington, D.C. via Skype. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. With changes in the U.S. Congress this week and the ascendancy of the Republicans, some are predicting movement regarding new immigration laws or policies in the United States. But this fall, the New York Times revealed a surprising source of a different sort of immigration. That source? The island of Cuba. More Cubans left the island in attempts to get to the U.S. and gain refugee status in the past year than any year in the past generation. About 25,000 in the past year. We turn to Professor Bill Leogrand at American University for his expertise. Leogrand is the co-author of the new book, Back Channel to Cuba. We spoke to him in Washington, D.C., Via Skype. I was a little surprised to see that the numbers were that high. Um, but one of the reasons for that is how easy it is for uh, Cubans to gain access to the United States uh, coming through Mexico. Because of the Cuban Adjustment Act, uh, once a Cuban um, is able to get to the United States, they're able to uh, claim uh, uh, status here. And the Cuban Adjustment Act allows them to basically become permanent residents pretty much automatically and then have a path to citizenship. Um, now, if they get stopped at sea by the Coast Guard, they're sent back to Cuba. So what's happened is that the flow of, of uh, Cubans trying to come to the United States has now been channeled through Mexico. So they, they hire a fast boat to take them to Mexico, and then they work with smugglers in Mexico to get them to the U.S. border. And once they arrive on the U.S. border, um, they're admitted to the United States. Given the ease of Cuban travel now, couldn't they just buy a plane ticket to Mexico and 
I'd have to hire that boat? Well, they'd have to be able to get a visa to enter Mexico, um, just as they would have to get a visa to enter the United States. So um, some people, of course, are, are doing precisely that. They're traveling to a variety of countries uh, in, in Latin America and in Europe, including most especially Spain, um, and, and then taking a plane to the United States. So once they touch down, then they can claim that they are, that they are political refugees. Yes, um, and in, they don't automatically get political refugee status, but it takes a long time to adjudicate that kind of a claim. And as long as they are in the United States for a year, they have the right to adjust their status to become permanent residents under the Cuban Adjustment Act. The import of that New York Times article seemed to say that this might just be the start of a large wave of Cuban emigration and that the U.S., particularly the southeastern U.S. and Florida in particular, might not be ready for a huge influx of new Cuban immigrants. I don't think that you're going to see the kind of refugee crisis that we saw in the Mariel boat lift of 1980 or in uh, the, the rafters crisis of 1994. That kind of uncontrolled migration crisis, I think, is a thing of the past because Cuba and the United States now have migration agreements with one another that allow for um, up to 20,000 and, and typically even more than 20,000 um, legal migrants every year. We've just come out of this uh, crisis. At least the um, Border Patrol says there's no longer a crisis with unaccompanied minors on the U.S. border. Your answer seems to say we're not going to head into a new one with the Cuban numbers that are increasing. No, I don't think we will. Um, there, you know, This is something that ebbs and flows with the uh, strength of the Cuban economy. Uh, the Cuban economy is still struggling, and so um, there is a certain degree of frustration among Cubans and a lot of younger people who are now willing to wait around for the economy to get better, and so they, they aspire to come to the United States. And, and uh, if they have the resources to be able to hire smugglers to get them in, then they try to do that. The thought was that after Fidel Castro stepped down and his brother Raul has been running things with a much softer hand and many, many economic reforms, uh, you've been on the program multiple times to talk about the historic reforms that have been going through under Raul Castro. One would think that the conditions have changed enough that there would not be these numbers of immigrants, the largest in 20 years since the since the the special periods crisis with the with the rafters crisis. This is also then a commentary, a wordless commentary on the effectiveness of the Castro regime, is it not? Well, when Raul took over, there was a lot of hopefulness uh, among Cubans that uh, his effort at reforming the economy was really going to pay dividends in terms of raising people's standard of living. Um, the reform process has been underway, and it's benefited some people tremendously, but it hasn't really raised all boats, if you will. Uh, economic growth has continued to be slow in Cuba. And so for a lot of Cubans, those who work in the state sector rather than working in tourism, uh, those who live on pensions rather than getting remittances from relatives abroad, life is still very difficult. And you have been to Cuba, I'm guessing multiple times 
recently. What what do your senses tell you of of conditions there? So I was actually there um, just about a week ago, and uh, there is a lot of commercial activity going on. Um, the number of small businesses, small private businesses, has quadrupled in the last couple of years. So there's just a lot of uh, street vendors and small restaurants and repair shops, uh, retail services of all kind are really proliferating. Um, but that's still a very small segment of the population that's benefiting from that. Um, the tourist industry is going gangbusters. Cuba will have 3 million foreign visitors this year. But again, that's uh, only really benefiting certain areas of the country. The city of Havana, of course, because it's a beautiful colonial city. Certain uh, areas along the beaches, like Veradero Beach. Some areas that are known for ecotourism are doing very well. But out in the hinterland, where agriculture is still the principal form of the economy, uh, they're just not seeing the benefits of that growth. So you're seeing a growing inequality in in Cuba as a result of, of the reform process. Uh, and it hasn't yet produced the kind of increase in productivity and growth that benefits people across the board. Tourism, is that now the, the leading economic factor in, in Cuba, even though it's only touching the urban centers? So. Tourism is one of the um, most important hard currency producers in the Cuban economy, but it's still second to the export of medical services. So the provision of doctors and nurses and medical technicians to Venezuela, for example, in exchange for oil, um, and also to other countries around the world, including Angola, for example, that now is um, the largest producer of hard currency in the Cuban economy. And remittances, we have to mention as well, remittances from mostly from Cuban Americans uh, will probably total about $2.5 billion this year, along with another $2 billion in gift packages, so-called, that Cuban Americans carry with them when they travel to the island. So at this point, it actually behooves the Cuban economy to let more folks come to the United States. Those remittances will naturally grow higher. Yeah, remittances have been uh, really critical for the Cuban economy ever since the special period and the 1990s when they really increased pretty dramatically. You mentioned uh, this export of health services overseas, this uh, new work between the U.S. and Cuba regarding Ebola, that only uh, raises the profile of uh, Cuban health internationally, does it not? The Cubans have had a, a very impressive uh, medical internationalism program uh, ever since the 1960s, actually. One of the very first missions that they sent abroad, they sent to, uh, to Chile after an earthquake in the 1960s, and they've been doing it ever since. Um, it's gotten much more important more recently Historically, they provided this assistance uh, gratis. They didn't charge anything for it. Um, more recently, they have begun to, uh, to, to use it as a form of trade, if you will, to export medical services to the countries that have the capacity to pay, like uh, oil producers, Venezuela and Angola. But when they send uh, a medical personnel to a place like Haiti or to a place like Liberia, they still uh, provide that service for free. Anything else that you think is important to consider when we talk about emigration from Cuba? 
Well, I think one one more thing is worth mentioning on the political front, and that is that while the government is still not tolerant of dissident groups that are explicitly uh, anti-government and are and organize uh, against the government, uh, there is a much wider scope of political debate uh, today in Cuba than there was 10 years ago. Thank you so much, Bill Leogrand, the Associate Vice Provost at American University and the co-author of the new book, Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations between Washington and Havana. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse again. My pleasure. We'll hear more from our interview with Bill Leogrand later this fall. That concludes our program this week. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.